Our Bible reading is Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13 and going through to 28. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus asked, But what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He said, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good is it? What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thank you, Carol, for that. As a Christian, sometimes I find it difficult to understand some of the sayings of Jesus. One such saying was the way Jesus responded to one of his disciples when he approached him and asked leave to go and bury his own father. Uh, Jesus looked at him and said, Let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. I found it very hard to understand what Jesus meant by saying, 
let the dead bury their own dead. It took me quite, quite a while to figure out that to understand this statement of Jesus, we need to at least look at three things. The context in which it was spoken. Secondly, the word play in that statement. And the uh, metaphor that Jesus uses. The Bible is not intended to be interpreted literally. In fact, some parts of the Bible are never meant to be interpreted literally. And in this case, Jesus was telling his disciples a clear statement of priority in the kingdom of God. And he told his disciples, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. You follow me. You have bigger and better and eternal things to do. To, and so therefore you follow me. That was the statement of priority in the kingdom of God. And it stops with that. In the passage that we are going to look at today, this morning from Matthew 16, verses 30 to 28, there are some other statements that are not easy to understand, which require very careful interpretation. And a good background to the Gospel of Matthew up to chapter 16 would help us to do just that. Now the purpose of Matthew to write his Gospel was to convince his Jewish uh, readers, that Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about God's Messiah. And to that, Matthew constantly alludes to the Old Testament scriptures. Then Matthew tells us the people's response to Jesus' ministry of ushering in the kingdom of God. That it was a mixed bag. Some people believed, some people were skeptical, and others, the religious leaders and the elite of Israeli society at that time, were vehemently opposed to him and wanted him dead. Then Matthew goes on to make it abundantly clear to his readers through a series of parables about the kingdom of God, that even though the religious leaders and the elite of Israeli society opposed Jesus, the kingdom of God is of eternal value, and nothing, nothing will stop it from spreading to incorporate people from every nation, tongue and tribe in it, which is the church. So as we come to chapter 16 of the book of Matthew, we're about to see a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Jesus, having sensed the danger from the religious leaders, decides to withdraw from his public ministry with a view to teach his disciples in private, to let them know what it meant for him to be God's Messiah. Now, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28, has a beautiful structure. It has a confession, it has a confusion, and it has a confirmation. 
It's very easy to remember those three words. So let's pick up the first one, confession of the Messiah's identity, as we read in verses 13 to 20. So as Jesus began to teach his disciples in private, he asked them the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the responses were varied. Some people, some people believe that he was the reincarnation of John the Baptist who was beheaded, or the prophet Jeremiah. Some erroneously believe that he was a reappearance of the prophet Elijah as foretold by the prophet Malachi. But then Jesus turned and asked his disciple, Whom do you think I am? And, Jesus, and Peter came up with this startling response. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commended Peter for his confession and said that it was a divine revelation. But when we come to verses 18 and 19, it gets a bit difficult. And unless we understand these two verses, we will not understand the passage. The first thing is, the rock on which Jesus promises to build his church cannot be Peter. If we come to that conclusion, we will face two problems. Firstly, it will not be in agreement with what the rest of the New Testament tells us about God's church and Jesus. And secondly, if you read the passage in its context, it will never permit us to make that conclusion. Because look at verse 23, where Jesus says to Peter, Get ye behind me, Satan. You do not have in your mind the things of God, but the things of the world. So, Peter certainly is not a good candidate for Jesus to build his church upon. The Greek word for Peter is Petros. The Greek word for rock is Petra. So what Jesus was saying to Peter was, Petros, on this Petra, I will build my church. And immediately you can see the word play there of similar sounding words. Petros, Petra. And the word rock or Petra is used figuratively in this statement to point to something else other than Peter. So the rock in this the rock on which Jesus promises to build his church is none other than the confession of of Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The church is built on Christ, the Son of the living God, and no other. Friends, if you take the context out of the Bible, you will end up with a religion devoid of truth. Let me explain to you that you with the illustration. The other day we were we had some Hindu friends uh, to dinner at our place, and there was this particular couple who uh, who followed the teachings of a particular guru who had died many decades ago. 
And uh, we were told that they had gone to Malaysia last year to celebrate this dead guru's birthday and uh, with other friends from other parts of the world. As such is the bondage that they are under uh, when they follow these gurus. Um, so after dinner, I was very keen to chat to the man. I was talking to him and he said, you know, I follow this particular guru. So I seized the opportunity and asked him, could you please tell me what his religious philosophy is? And then he dropped a bombshell. He said, oh, our guru teaches from the Bible. He had the grace of God to understand it by himself. And then he said, um, you know, the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is within you. And all what we have to do, according to our guru, is to peel off all our pride and arrogance and sinfulness and ego and get to the core of our personality and become one with God. Wow! You can take the context out of the Bible and get it to say anything that you want. You can take the context out of the Bible and form a religion without truth and lead many to damnation like these gurus. But verse 19, when we come to it, is a direct citation from the book of uh, Isaiah, chapter 22, verse 22. And Isaiah, speaking about God's Messiah, tells us that the key to the house of David would rest upon his shoulders. So there are two things that we have to understand here. What is the house of David and what is this key through which we can enter the house of David? Now, without going into too much detail, I want to let you know that the house of David, spoken of by Isaiah and here, is none other than God's people under God's under the rule of God's eternal king coming from the line of David as spoken of by in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me repeat that to you. You get this right. The house of David is God's people under the rule of God's eternal king who will come from the line of David as spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a very important chapter in the Old Testament, and it plays out very conspicuously in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. For example, when Jesus entered the, uh, in Jerusalem on a donkey, how did the people greet him? They said, Hosanna to the son of David. When Jesus hung on the cross, what was the sign put on top of him? King of the Jews. In all these things, 2 Samuel chapter 7 plays out very, very powerfully in the, li- in the life of Jesus. And this house of David is the new humanity that was salvaged by the blood of Christ from people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. 
And the key is the gospel of Jesus Christ or the work and person of Jesus Christ. People from every nation, tongue and tribe, by means of this key, enter the kingdom of God under the eternal king of God. Now, for example, Stanhope Anglican Church, we are a microcosm of the kingdom of, of the house of David. Look around us. We see people from various nations, tongues, and tribe here with us because they have entered God's eternal kingdom by means of the gospel of Jesus Christ and or by the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's why we are here. But the question is, why did Jesus gave the keys to Peter, that key of the gospel. Because Jesus knew that he was not going to be with us physically in this world for long. The race to summon people from every nation, tongue and tribe will have to be done by the followers of Christ under his authority, using the key or the baton of the gospel to, uh, for that purpose. So all what Jesus was telling Peter was, Peter, I will give you this baton or this key. Uh, you, with all his authority, you start the race of summoning people from every nation, tongue and tribe. If you consider it as a relay race, Jesus was appointing Peter to do the first lap of the race, to get off the starting blocks. And that's exactly what Peter did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when people from every nation, tongue and tribe were gathered in Jerusalem. Peter got up, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the gospel for the first time, and bang, 2,000 people were saved on that day. He started the church. So what Jesus did was, is similar to what God did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 and 2, God appointed Abraham as the founding father and the rock of the physical Israel under the old covenant. The Lord hewned him out of the rock and appointed him as the founding father and the rock of the physical Israel in the Old Testament. Similarly, God was appointing Peter as the founding father and the rock of the spiritual Israel under the new covenant. And from that point onwards, the key of the gospel or the baton will be passed on faithfully to the next generations, to the subsequent generations, until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as I speak, 
the baton or the key is being passed down to the next generation in our church. As our children learn in the Sunday school from faithful, diligent teachers about the gospel and Christ. As Lauren, Olivia, Rachel and Jimmy teach faithfully and lovingly about Christ and his gospel to the high schoolers. Not to forget the good work that Leanne did for many years in the past for our Sunday school children. Thank you, Leanne. That's how God builds his church. Through the faithful passing down of the gospel and the bold proclamation of the gospel and the bold persuasion of the people ungodly by the church. That's how God builds his church. And he will build his church. Now, the second part of verse 19, we are told that Jesus has power to open things that no man can shut and shut things that no man can open. And he gives that power to the church, not only to Peter, but also to the church. If you read chapter 18, you will realize that God is giving that power to all his believers. It was only five weeks ago that the media gave us the grimmest warning about the bushfires, about the rain, about the drought situation, and the impending tighter water restrictions. What did we do as a church? We prayed to our God. We didn't allow Mother Earth, whoever that may be, I don't know, but to mother us and to manage us, but we went straight to the living God, the creator of the universe, on behalf of our beautiful land, and asked for mercy. And lo and behold, after five weeks, the fires are all quenched, the dams are almost full, and we can tell the authorities that the church has prayed, God has answered, and you can now uh, let go of your restrictions. Friends, God has given us power in the, as a church to bind things and to lose things and to manage the affairs in this earth as citizens of heaven. It's very important for us to understand that. Now we go to the second part of this um, passage, confusion about the Messiah in verses 21 to 26. Once his identity was established among the disciples, Jesus began to teach them about his mission, how he should suffer under, under the chief priests and the leaders and be crucified and be raised again to life after three days. But that didn't go well with our friend Peter, did it? And Jesus' response to Peter for his partial understanding of the Messiah and his partial obedience to the Messiah was scathing, to say the least. Look at verse 23. He says, get, me, get behind me, Satan. You do not have 
in mind the things of God, but the things of this world. And then he proceeds to talk to his disciples about what it means to follow him. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There are three things to note there. Firstly, there is self-denial if we want to follow Christ. Self-denial and other-centeredness for a follower of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we need to take up our individual crosses. What does that mean? Jesus took up the cross for the salvation of the entire world. And we need to take up our individual crosses. That means the work cut out for each believer for the salvation of others. That is our individual cross. We need to take that and follow Jesus. And thirdly, following Jesus is the uh, lifelong obedience to his word. We cannot be followers of Jesus without obedience to his word. And, friends, we know all about Jesus, don't we? But do we also know how his mission impacts our lives? Do you know what Christ has called you, the work that he has cut out for you in your individual cross for the salvation of others. If you don't know, I as your minister for missions will lovingly urge you to get on your knees and find that out. Because when we find that out, this church will not be the same again. When we take up our cross and follow him. Then Jesus points out the ultimate folly of setting our minds on the things of the earth. He tells his disciples, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? When a man stands in front of Jesus on the day of judgment, what earthly gain is he going to give in exchange for his soul? Will he give his educational qualifications? Will he tell the Lord, I've got a big bank balance left behind in the world. You take it and let me in. Or would he say, Lord, you can have my palatial house that I owned while I was back on earth, for which I paid all, spent all my life working to pay the mortgage. You take it and you let me in. Or will he say, no, no, in addition to that, I have got other investment properties. I can give that to you too, Lord. Would you let me in? Or would he say, I got a Tesla car parked in my carport. You can have that, Lord. You let me in. Sweet nothing will suffice except the blood of Christ that forgives and restores us to God. Let us not be like Peter in this story who followed Jesus without knowing how his mission impacted him. Peter was later transformed and became an effective witness. And that's what I would pray that we will become. Effective witnesses 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to the third section of our passage, confirmation of the identity and mission of Jesus in verses 27 and 28. Verse 27 echoes numerous Old Testament references about the judgment by works. Now we all know that we don't have any judgment of condemnation because we are free, set free by Christ, by his work on the cross. But that does not mean that we are absolved from accountability for our works. Now the person, uh, the, the, the Old, Old Testament reference that I have picked up for, the, for our consideration this morning is from Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12, which describes the work cut out for each believer and follower of Jesus Christ. It says, the wisest man who ever lived on this earth says this, to rescue those who are being led away to death and to hold back those who are staggering to the slaughter. The figurative speech that is used here to, to explain uh, the, the judgment of condemnation or judgment of wrath of God that is coming upon non-believing people is grotesque, to say the least, isn't it? But that's how the Holy Spirit wants us to, wants to remind us about our responsibility towards the non-believing world. And verse 28 is a puzzling verse. Does it mean that people who stood with Jesus that day are still living 2,000 years later awaiting the second coming of Jesus? It appears that way, doesn't it? Some of you standing here will not taste death until the Son of Man comes in His glory. But here again, we need, we need to use the context wisely to interpret it. If chapter 16 doesn't tell us the answer to that, the passage that we are looking at, we've got to go to chapter 17. Just read the first few verses in chapter 17, where it tells us very clearly that after six days, Jesus took a few of them who stood with him six days ago up a high mountain, and there in front of them, he transfigured. He took Peter, James, and John, and there up the mountain, he transfigured in front of them. Transfiguration is simply this. The Son of Man became the Son of God for a brief period of time. That's all it is. And they saw Jesus in all his glory. As, as if he would, as in the way that he would come in the future uh, to judge the world. And they all fell flat on the ground. And they heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. To Peter, who was, who was admonished earlier, it was a good reminder to tell him, 
Peter hear him when he says that his ministry is to lay his down as a ransom for many. So for a brief period of time, the three disciples saw him as the Son of God and they were conf- and, and, and a heavenly voice from the Father confirmed to them that the mission of Jesus is to lay down his life for the world and for, and for their salvation. Right. So what does this passage tell us? This passage tells us this. That Jesus, the Messiah, laid down the foundation for the house of David through his work on the cross. But the task of building up the house of David has been given to his followers. The race continues to gather people from every nation, tongue, and tribe through the key, which is the gospel, and build up this church. And to do that, we need to live out the truth. We should not only live out the truth, we should be seen to be living out the truth. 133 days from now, we'll be moving to a new uh, facility. Yes, it's very attractive, nice architecture. For a year, people who drive past that we look at the architecture and admire it. But after that, they will look at people who are inside that. And, and wonder, who are these people who are inside this? And we are the people who had to give them the hope and the light of Jesus Christ. And to do that, we have to live out the truth. And that's what we're going to see next week. So before we come to church next week, Please read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 20, and we'll go through that next week as to see how we can be effectively the light and hope uh, of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, and God bless you.